0: Open your Bibles this morning. We are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16. So if you get your scriptures open or maybe your app open. We had a memorial service here yesterday. And it was for a man that I knew well, Robert Cuttridge. He had been a former elder at CCF. And probably one of the things I most remember about Robert is at one point we had actually a little drama ministry. We had a guy that came that understood drama really well And understood how to create drama teams, Tim Stanlake. And uh, we had actually a drama ministry that was kind of happening. And I remember still the book of Esther. And uh, Robert Kutcher's played Mordecai. For those of you who remember that years ago, probably more than 10 years ago now. And uh, he just did a masterful job with that. He was a well-read man. He memorized things well. And he played Mordecai. And it was awesome. Every time I'm at a memorial service, I am always reminded that... Most of us get 70, some a few more, some a few less years. And there is going to come a day in which we enter into eternity. That is the truth for all of us. And every time I'm at a memorial service, it kind of brings that home back to me. You know, you would think that heaven is just going to be just filled with all the really good people. If you really lived an exemplary life, then somehow you get heaven. And you know, that is not what the gospel says in the scriptures. That's not Jesus' message Jesus' message is that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and none of us deserve heaven at all. And somehow that heaven is given to us, eternal life is given to us through Jesus and through his debt, his life that is paid on our behalf. And so we are individuals that get heaven, but we get it as a free gift, not as a result of anything that we've done. And that's the message of our gospel, and that's such a different message than anywhere in the world today. Every time I'm back at a memorial service, I'm reminded of that, and it makes me grateful to God. Amen? It's a good thing. Well, this morning, I am uh, in the last sermon I'm going to preach in the We Are Disciples series. There's one more message after this one. Pastor Nick will have that next Sunday, and then we head into our holiday time, and so there will be Christmas messages at that point, but I'm excited for this week to finish off with the We Are Disciples from my From my preaching standpoint. And I want to remind you that we have been studying not just about how to be disciples of Jesus ourselves, but how to help others become disciples of Jesus. That's been our entire focus. And I started off all the way back in the first few weeks of the series talking about four-chair discipling. I've got the graphic up one more time for you here. So there's four chairs that represent four calls of Jesus. And his calls are increasingly to come deeper into relationship with him. And so it starts off in chair one with him saying, come and see. Just hang out with me. See what I'm like. And individuals who come and see what Jesus is like and say, yes, I wish to follow you, move to chair two. And that's the extension. As Jesus says, now come follow me. Learn about my life. Learn the way I lead my life. And you're going to begin to take that on as the character and quality of your own life. Individuals who progress from uh, chair 2 to chair 3 are moving from uh, being disciples themselves and learning rhythms of Jesus' life themselves to now telling others about that. And Jesus said in chair 3, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And So we're individuals that are now not just concerned about our own lives, but individuals around us so that we can begin to engage them and tell them about the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. You move from chair three to chair four and in chair four you're bearing much fruit Jesus says and that's the point at which you're helping others in their discipleship journey. And so you're taking an interest. You're spending one-on-one time or small group time with others in order to see them move from chair one on up into chair three, two, and three, and ultimately into chair four. That's a little snapshot. If you want to hear more about what I originally said about that, I think it was the sermons two and three in this series where I talked about that, what it is, and how to progress uh, through those chairs. Well, then in the last number of weeks, we've been looking at topics that deal with all of the the chairs, they transcend all of the chairs, and so we've talked about things like prayer and things like money, and last week we talked about how to engage lost people, disciples engage lost people, and again, that's true for any of the chairs that you're in, and today we're going to talk about one final topic that I'm going to cover, it's a little light one, it's dying with Jesus, that's what we're going to talk about today. Let me start off today, and I want to show you a picture all the way back from when I was 16 years old, something that was very important to me at 16 years old, and uh, yeah. Now there it is, right? Uh, I played baseball. I was on the JV baseball team, and I want to f- talk to you about the first day of practice for my JV year. Before I tell you about that first practice, I need to remind you that baseball, well, baseball is the sport of of beer and hot dogs. Uh, It's the sport of, you know, you can have a little belly and still play the game, all right? It's not the people that are playing baseball that are probably the ones that are running marathons, if you know what I mean. They they are just, you know, out there. It takes a little finesse to kind of learn the game. You got to learn how to hit the ball and and, and so, again, it's, it's not something that you're going out and, and you're uh, ultimately having the ultimate of fitness. Now, again, at 16 years old, most of us did have a level of fitness, and, you know, that, that fades over time. But in that time, uh, you know, that was the, kind of the rhythm of how you expected the game to be played. Well, let me tell you about my first practice of my JV year. There was a man who was uh, my coach, Joe Graben, and at that time, uh, I, he would become actually my favorite coach of all time, but for that day, he was not. We showed up for that first day, and he lined us all up. I think we got out, maybe warmed up our arms a little bit, but then he got out, he said, put your gloves down and give me five laps. We're like, oh, okay, all right, we can do that. Five laps around the field. Get on that line over there. We're gonna do sprints for the next 20 minutes, sprints, and one thing that he called fart lickers, and boy, I don't even remember what that was, but it was bad, all right? And so they were just, you know, all of these these laps and running and and go get some water let's do it all again and it was like what is this guy doing is he trying to kill us and i remember one of the guys actually had guys my age had the audacity to say what are we doing this is stupid and coach graben looked at him and said what did you say And he fell silent, and we all fell silent. And the rest of the practice had no batting, had no fielding and catching. It was running the entire first practice. Little did we know that that guy who spoke up that day and said, what are we doing, this is stupid, never came back. He he, he never came back to another practice, and he did not obviously make the team that year. That first practice would become iconic for the way that we would work all year long. Again, we would come to the spot where we ultimately would hit the ball and we'd pitch and we'd do all the things that are part of baseball. But he was saying something to us that year about what we were going to be doing, about the tone that was going to be set. And I will never forget that because, again, that day was unorthodox. That day was uncomfortable and it, it was just one that will always stick in my mind because it was so different. Now, in the passage today, there is a similar epiphany. Jesus, with Jesus, it's all going so well. And here we are, and we're seeing him heal people. And he's teaching all the masses. And we're getting free meals of, 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 of loaves and fishes. And th- I mean, this is just awesome. And all of a sudden, that comes to a screeching halt because Jesus says some seemingly crazy words about us denying ourselves and dying with Him. Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. Let me see if we can uh, make some sense of what Jesus is saying here. Follow along. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? But for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Lord, these are some heavy words, and we wish to understand what those words mean to us today as your disciples. So pull any plugs out of our ears, anything that would hinder us in any way, and let us hear very clearly what you say today about being your disciples. We intend to follow what you say And so, uh, Lord, let us understand that to the depths of our soul now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our story today, Jesus has told his disciples his plan for the last phase of his life. Jesus has turned his eyes towards Jerusalem, and he's now painted a picture of what the harrowing events are going to be like as the disciples make their way back to Jerusalem with him. And he's telling them, this is what's going to be fulfilled about my life. Now, when Jesus tells them all the things that are going to happen, he's going to have those chief priests that are going to be angry with him. They're going to, you know, abuse him. He's going to actually die and then rise again on the third day. They tune out almost everything else except for Jesus is going to die. That's what they hear him say. And Peter, he looks at around the room and I mean, he's like, is hearing this and he's like, Jesus must have just misspoke. I mean, Jesus, are you tired or, or, or are you uh, confused in some way? Because this can't be the way this is all going to down go down. Jesus, you obviously need to be corrected because Messiahs don't die messiahs live messiahs are victorious messiahs put their feet on the neck of rome and that's what we fully expect and so peter turns to jesus and says "Uh, excuse me jesus uh that's not going to happen to you that will not happen to you in better maybe a translation of this, somebody translated this passage this way or this uh, words from Peter to Jesus. God forgive you for saying anything so mistaken or so shocking. So he's almost rebuking or he is rebuking Jesus saying that could never happen to you because obviously you're the Messiah. How often do we do the same with God? We're like, you know, God, we know the way. You know, God, we we know what we're doing here. God, we know the path. I mean, we're followers of yours, but, you know, there's an obvious path here, and that's the one we're going to take. And so we do the same with God all the time and with Jesus all the time. And Jesus never rebuked a disciple or a person, any person, more harshly than what he's going to rebuke Peter. Jesus even doesn't rebuke the Pharisees as much as He's going to rebuke Peter right now because Peter's words are are so out of bounds. It's like maybe a child in a family that puts the whole family at risk in some way and they're just going to get that stern warning from dad and that's what happens to Peter. And he literally does a couple of things here. First of all, he shows disdain for Peter's words by literally turning his back to Peter. That's what uh, Peter's going to see as Jesus' back. And then he says two very decisive things to Peter. He says a couple things that are really important. He says, first of all, get behind me, Satan. Now, he doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. And he's saying, at this moment, you are the equivalent of Satan in your attempts to stop me. You're listening more to to people, to man, than you are to God right now, Peter. And so I give you the label, Satan. The other thing he says is, Peter, you are a stumbling block. And a stumbling block is one who puts a block or a, a, a barrier in the path of somebody else. And he's saying, Peter, what you're doing right now is you're putting a path into the Father's plan for me. I'm being planned to go to a death. And you're putting a roadblock in the way of that. And in essence, again, you're in concert with Satan or the devil right now as you are attempting to do that because my life mission is to follow the Father's will. Can you imagine Peter right now? You know, Peter, if you looked at him, he'd be the one that's looking at the ground. He'd be the one that's shoulders are slumped over. You know, he'd be the one that just is feeling the smarts of dad's, you know, really rebuke or his tongue lashing that he's felt. And the surprise of everybody, all the disciples that are listening on, Jesus is telling them something very important. He's saying, all of my disciples need to follow in my footsteps. Jesus calls for the willing death of every one of his disciples. And in a short little translation or a short little paraphrase, this is the way I might say this passage. Jesus calls all of his disciples, come die with me. Come die with me with me. That's the words that Jesus is giving to Peter and all of the disciples who are listening. And of course, they would have the same response as what we would have. <laughs> Lord, never. What good does that do? What good does it do for us to have a death with you? That, that, that's no good. And of course, from the cradle all the way until all, every aspect of our life, we are taught that there's something that's more important than anything else, and that is to preserve life, to protect life, think about it for a minute. You leave the hospital and you are put into the little safety seat and it's just put into the car the right way. And that's the first effort, as it were, to make sure that we're protecting something that's precious, life. And then it's manifested into helmets that are worn every time we ride a bike, safety uh, pill dispensers so that kids can't get into that, code words in case there's a, uh, a person around who's nefarious. And so we're able to have all of this language and all of these practices in order to make sure that we are protecting something that's very important and that is life. And all the way until the final days of your life, even in the hospital with tubes coming out of you in every way, there is a message that's being sent. Life needs to be protected at all costs. Keep it safe. And this extends not only to our uh, protection of our life, but there's something else that happens, and that is the maximization of our lives. And especially in America, that's what we really live for is the maximization of our lives. And there is an equation. The, The quality of your life depends upon the quantity of your life experiences. And so we live, again, for titles, and that's part of our life experiences that gives us the quantity and therefore the quality of life. We have pleasurable experiences that we want to go have, whether it's a fine meal or it's a vacation or many other things that we would have that would be adding to the quality of our lives. We have things that we own that would be a part of that whole thing. And so again, we're not only seeking to protect life, but we're seeking to enhance life in every way. And Jesus steps into the middle of that and he says, here's my plan for you, come die with me, come die with me. And everything that is on the inside of us says no to that. So as Jesus' disciples, I want to explore today, what does it mean to die with Jesus? Why is that important? What results from that? If we're going to be his disciples and these serious words come to us, how do we process those? What do those mean for us? I've got three things I want you to see today about what it means to die with Jesus. First, death means self-denial and crucifixion. Jesus says, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I want you to look at the two phrases. There are two key phrases there. The first one is, deny yourself. And when Jesus says deny yourself, he doesn't mean like, you know, just give up chocolate today. Or, you know, uh, don't study, or excuse me, don't go out and have fun tonight because you're going to stay home and study. Self denial is not at that level for Jesus. Deny here is a word or a concept that occurs twice in the Gospels, one of them in this instance. And you know when the other one occurred? The other one occurred when Jesus was denied by Peter at the day of his death. You remember how it went down. They looked around and they said, hey, you're one of the disciples, I can tell. And they probably could tell because of his accent. He had a Galilean accent. And Peter says, I don't even know that man. In fact, the scriptures say he even cursed. I don't even blank, 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 blank know that man. And he denies Jesus and does it not only once, but three times. That is the idea of what a denial looks like and so, how would that translate into us? How would that mean we are denying ourselves? It means that we're looking at the person in the mirror and we're saying to that person in the mirror, us, I'm not with that guy. That guy is not the guy that I ultimately trust or follow. That guy is not the guy that is ultimately my hope. That's what we're saying. Denying ourselves means that we look in the mirror and say, I, I know you want to be treated well, but today we're going to pick up the uh, towel and we're going to pick up the basin. I know you'd like to go first, but today we're actually going to go last. I know you'd like to give that guy a piece of your mind, but today we're going to remain silent like Jesus would have. That's a glimpse of denying myself. Secondly is the uniquely Christian command, take up your cross. And I know again that's very common language for us today, But for Jesus' day, that would have been alarming because everybody knew who people were that took up a cross. They were criminals. They were enemies of the state. They were people that the Roman government was displeased with, and so they would march them through the streets on display for everybody to jeer and spit at when we were reading that prayer that Pastor James had for us from the Valley of Vision and all of the things that transpired with Jesus, that was what was on display as he was walking through the street and people were throwing disdain at him. And every person who walked through the street was an enemy of the state. They had done something against the state or spoken against the state and they all ended at the same spot, death by crucifixion. And so the disciples knew instantly what jesus had said and it was like shock they looked around at each other it was like do do we just do we just hear that right did did he just say that we are to pick up our cross i mean that can't be we're not enemies of the state like that that's certainly something that god wouldn't want from us and that's exactly what jesus says he says take up your cross and utterly give your life Over for me. And of course, at that point, they also don't know that that's exactly what Jesus is going to do himself. Jesus says he's going to die and rise again, but he doesn't necessarily say what his death will be in the form of crucifixion. But that's exactly what would happen. There have been many Christians martyrs uh, throughout the years. And again, the point here that Jesus is making is not to take up your cross as a martyr, although that might be the case. I think he's saying something that's much more deep for all of us because all of us are called to take up our cross. And so it's not just at, at persecution that we are experiencing that. In fact, the bigger issue may be that we are sentencing and executing our own wills, our own importance, our own agendas. That may be the bigger aspect of taking up our cross is all the things about Us that have to die on the inside of us, and that's something that's very uh, counter cultural. That's something that humans uh, are not very good at because we don't naturally give up our lives in that way or seek to carry our cross in that way. I recently heard the story a true story of a pastor, right now in Pakistan. And he will go nameless just because of security reasons. But this pastor in Pakistan is putting together right now a conference for more than a thousand Christian workers in Pakistan. Now, again, in order to understand the the breadth or the the dimensions of that. Understand that Pakistan today, it's a predominantly Muslim country, and it's illegal to convert. So it's illegal to convert to Christianity. And if you do become a follower of Jesus, you're probably sacrificing a whole lot. You're sacrificing probably your job. You're sacrificing education for your kids. You're sacrificing maybe your family. And so all of those things are happening at that moment. And here's this pastor that says, I'm getting together a thousand Christian workers from this area, and we're pulling them together for a conference of training and encouragement. And when somebody asked this pastor, they said, why are you doing this? They said, don't you know how dangerous this is for you to do this in this instance? He says, oh yeah, I know that. He said, but I've, I've, I've actually already been in jail. I've actually been abused in jail. I've actually been tortured in jail. And in essence, I gave up my life in jail. Therefore, I I have no longer really a life that's my own in any way. I have given my life up. I'm ready to carry my cross. And my, my will is now to do whatever it is that the Father has for me. And that's my purpose. My life is gone. My life is now His Honestly, I'm sure that all of us would love to say that we are decidedly in that space. There are days I feel like I'm in that space and there are days that I don't. And so again, I'm learning right along with you what it means to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. And I believe Jesus' words and I know you do too. So I hope we're on the path of learning more and more what that means in our daily lives of what it means to follow Jesus in that way because that's again what he's calling for. The second thing I want you to see about death is death means losing life to gain it. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And most of us are very good at clamoring to gain and promote our own lives. We are the focus. You don't have to look anything further than, you know, Facebook and how many friends do you have and kind of you, how are you talking about your own life and promoting the things that you've done. I mean, that's kind of on display for everybody to see is that we're into self-enhancement as it were or, or self-promotion. And there's all kinds of things around us that are that are wanting us to kind of go in that direction. As an aside, I always remember that my parents would say to me, and maybe your parents said to you too, Brian, the world does not... Yeah, say it louder. The world does not revolve around you. Yeah, the world does not revolve around you. And what great things for parents to remind kids because it's so easy for the world to revolve around us. And the world is always helping us with that message. It wants us to consider all of the things that are about us. And so there's all kinds of focus upon self. Let me give you some self ideas that are very prominent with today. We have self-help today. Here's a big one, self-actualization today, self-improvement, self-guided tours, self-made men, self-defense, self-assurance, self-care, self-fulfillment, and so many other kinds of self-stuff. And Jesus said the pursuit of self is not the path of life. In fact, trying to save ourselves actually means that we lose life. Now again, there's some level of self-focus that obviously happens and is not wrong. Every day when you get up and choose something to eat, not wrong. Every day that you're choosing something to wear or you're choosing individuals to interact with, some of those are just the daily aspects of life. But Jesus is the first one to say, there is such a thing as going overboard, There is such a thing it's possible that you pursue all of your own self interest to the spot in which you're spiritually, relationally, and morally bankrupt, and that's what he's warning us about here. Now I would imagine that individuals in the crowd by this time have heard Jesus talk quite enough, and they've been looking at each other and saying, Well, you know, it's been a good ride. There's been a lot of good things that have happening, but man, this is maybe the point at which I check out and I go back to the farm. And Jesus blocks the door from them doing that. Listen as you hear how he's doing that. Verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. And if you think the cost of following Jesus is too high, then think about the cost of not following Jesus, of what the alternative is. The Greek word here for life is the same word as soul. Those are the same words, and they literally mean perhaps self And to give an idea of of what Jesus is really saying here, maybe I go to the translation from Eugene Peterson in the message. He says, what good would it get you you if you gained everything but you lost you? You know, the real you, he says. And so he says, all of us are in the process of giving up ourselves And either we give up ourselves to Jesus, or we give ourselves over somehow to the world, and as it were, that ends up being lost. In the end, all of us is ultimately lost. And so Jesus is saying, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I'm not going to follow you, but then gain yourself. But if you lose yourself to me, then ultimately you will gain it. And so there's nothing to be gained uh, from us trying to hold on to what we ultimately will end up losing. Let me see if I can give you another story that will help you understand some of this idea of, uh, of, of letting go of the things that are less important to gain the things that are the most important. There was a plane crash, it's a very famous one because it was studied for years by the FAA and it happened on September 8th, 2015 when a British Airways flight was taking off from McCarran Airport in Las Vegas. Here's a picture of that plane flight as it was uh, on the runway getting ready to take off and there was a colossal failure of the left engine, the pilot said, and so they aborted the takeoff and they brought the plane to a stop and the left engine was catching fire and it was beginning to now propel itself to the rest of the plane. And so there was emergency evacuation measures. You know, they're going to pop out all of those things that are the ramps and everything and start to get people off the plane. But here's what was fascinating about what happened. I'm going to show you the next picture with people getting off the plane. Here it is. And I want you to notice something that might be strange. Can you see anything that's strange in that picture? People are carrying their bags. Now let me tell you why that's important. The FAA has a plan that when there is a colossal failure of a plane, they want everybody off the plane in 90 seconds. That's the the way to get the maximum safety for the individuals involved. In this case, they said it was amazing for the number of people that stopped to get their carry-on bags over the cabin, you know, over the over the overhead things to carry those off the plane with them. And they said, you, to understand this, you've got to do the math. Let's pretend, they said, for 170 people on the plane that day, that each person that stopped, maybe half of them, took five seconds in order to get their bag. That would mean that to evacuate that plane, it would take seven minutes. Now imagine you were the last one off the plane at seven minutes with all the smoke continuing on, It would be amazing because at that point, your life would be in great jeopardy. In this instance, everybody got off the plane, so they had longer than that 90 seconds, and they uh, obviously, I think 20 people were hospitalized for some smoke inhalation, so nobody lost their lives. But this is what is the upshot of this as they studied this uh, in in detail. One veteran pilot says, we're always shaking our head. It doesn't matter what we say to people. People are going to do what people are going to do. And there was one person that summarized that whole incident this way. He said, people love their carry-on bags more than they love life itself. People love their carry-on bags more than they love life itself. And I think that's Jesus' message to us today, is that we may not choose to actually pick up our cross deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him and at that point we're saying no we like our carry-on bags better than we actually like life itself and it's a it's a terrible trade it's a terrible idea but you know people are going to do what people are going to want to do is what the, the 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 upshot of this of this story really is and it's sad if that's the way it ends because again Jesus is saying there's a better way All right, there's one more thing I want you to see. Third, death changes my ability to see. So when I die to Jesus, something on the inside of me is changing to see things I couldn't see before. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And so again, that's a strange thing because again, People that are normally dead don't have any sense of vision at all. They don't, they don't see things at all because their body's not responding in that way. But with Jesus, things are different. The point at which they're dead to themselves and alive to Jesus, they begin to see new things. And Jesus says, some people here today with me at that time are not even going to taste death until they see something interesting, which is the Son of Man, Jesus' reflection or title for Himself, coming in His kingdom. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Lots of ink has been spilled on that. Did Jesus mean the very next episode, which was the transfiguration, and some of the disciples saw Jesus glowing and the Father's voice from heaven speaking and saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? Is that what he meant? Did Jesus mean the start of the church at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would fall on the whole church, and miracles would begin to happen all around them? Or did Jesus mean his literal return, his second coming, I don't know which of those is the best interpretation, but I think this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying when we die to ourselves, we begin to see things new. We begin to see things that we had not seen before, and we begin to have disclosed to us by God things that are most important to him. That's what happens as we begin to lose our lives in order to gain our life with Jesus himself. That's what dying will give us is Uh, some new sight into the things God wants us to see. Well, Jesus says, follow me and come and die with me. And that is actually something that spawns a brand new life on the insides of us. It yields the true self. If there's some true person on the inside of us, that's what's coming to life when we die to ourselves and give ourselves over to Jesus. And it's not an optional program. This is not for those of you who are, you know, the best disciples do this, but all the rest it's optional. No, this is for everybody who wants to become a disciple of Jesus. He says, come and die with me. Let me end with this today. It's a story from Pastor Fred Craddock. He says that uh, he has come to spots in his life before where he says, to lose my life and give my life to Jesus appears to be a very glorious thing. he says, to pour myself out for others, to have an ultimate martyrdom of my life, he says, I come to the spot where I say, I'm gonna do that, let's go Jesus, I'll go out in a blaze of glory. He says, we think that it's like maybe coming and giving Jesus a thousand dollar bill that represents our lives and saying, here it is, I'm all in. And it's like Jesus saying this, I want you to take that thousand dollar bill I want you to go to the bank and I want you to get quarters. And now I want you to take that life that you've given over to me and I want you to spend it 25 cents here, 50 cents there. For the kid that is down the street that you're going to listen to a little bit longer than say get lost, 25 cents. To the church meeting, 25 cents. To the care that you give for the neighbor while they're sick, 25 cents. For the person that maybe needs the help in the nursing home, 25 cents. For the single mom that needs her yard cleaned up, 25 cents. And that's the way that we are called to lose our lives is to spend them 25 cents at a time. It's far easier actually to have your life end in that blaze of glory than it is to live the life in which there is the constant deposit Of 25 cents. Jesus says come die with me. And that is the path of discipleship. And it is the path. Of true life. True life cannot be gained. Without dying. With Jesus. Let's pray. Hard words Lord. And we wish there was a. (laughs) a way to perhaps escape that because death is a big deal. But you speak of it in glorious terms. Your death was not anything, Lord, that was uh, not what the Father had planned and so you wanted that even though it was painful. And you tell us that our deaths may be equally as painful to our flesh but yield something great in the kingdom of God. They yield some new life that you're, you're, you're blooming on the inside of us. Would you continue to teach us? Would you continue to talk to us about what it means for us to give up our lives for you? That is the way that you talk about being pleasing in your sight. And so we seek to be those kinds of people. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who did this perfectly. Amen.